Welcome to another episode of Knowing Nature, the podcast all about exploring and engaging with the natural world. I'm Victor, and joining me virtually today are Maggie, an environmental educator once again. Hello, Maggie. Hello. Good to be back. And uh, another environmental education practitioner is Paul. Welcome, Paul. Hello. Thank you. Now, all three of us, we worked together as educators at a charity here in London, the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust. But we're coming together here today because we all do photography in various forms. So we're going to talk about photography and how we can use it to bring a bit of nature indoors with us and to help us explore and engage with the natural world in new and different ways. So how does photography help you to engage with nature in a slightly different way would you think Maggie? Um, for me it's a matter of mindfulness because when you when I go out with my camera outside I really look for details whether it's sort of patterns and leaves and flowers or whether it's particular species of birds or even butterflies it's all about kind of just being that present looking at what's in front of you. For me wildlife photography is a big part of that just being in the moment. And Paul what about you? I think quite similar to Maggie, I also got very interested in macro photography last year and that really helped me look at sort of small details because often when I'm out and about I'm looking at bigger things but with macro photography you're looking for the tiniest, tiniest little details. I found myself looking at you know the, the very intricate patterns inside the flowers and tiny little insects and all that sort of thing so I, I found it really helped me sort of notice uh, the smaller things in the world. Yeah, I would definitely agree. And I think when I go out for a walk and I've got my camera with me, what I tend to go out with an idea of what I want to spend the day taking pictures of, I think. Partly it's because my main tool is DSLR, digital SLR camera. And that's, I've got a few different lenses to go on with it. And I, I don't want to carry them all with me. So I kind of need to pick like, okay, am I going to focus in on macro stuff today? Am I going to want to take pictures of birds? Or am I going to want to lug all of that around and just be prepared for anything? Uh, well, I, yeah. I used to be like you, Victor. Uh, where, um, sort of, I, I had my telezoom that would go on and then the wide um, lens and so on. And I, I found it quite tedious because I felt like it was really limiting me to doing one thing in a day. So either I'm taking photos of birds with my telezoom or... I'm, I'm doing landscapes today or I need to switch it over. Uh, it sort of turned out to be a bit of a headache and a bit heavy as well. So I've actually moved on to a bridge camera, which enables me to do whatever I like <laughs> with just one lens. And it's not perhaps the same quality, but um, it's just much more flexible in the day, what you, what you see. So my photography tends to be quite opportunistic, depending on what I see. Uh, Paul, what about you? What's your um, tool of choice at the moment? Um, at the moment, because of the lockdown and also because of the time of year, I've mostly been using, because I have a wide angle lens, I've mostly been going out and taking pictures of sunsets and sunrises and uh, just the landscape in our local park, uh, which has been really good fun. I find that usually I, I, if I'm going out with specifically photography in mind, I'll try and take all the lenses because I have a DSLR. But of course, it means you've got less room for other stuff like binoculars and um, your lunch, that sort of thing. So um, so I, I, I kind of see a bit of a disadvantage to that. 
that. But then when I go out with just the wide angle lens, maybe and another lens, you can guarantee you're going to find some tiny little insect you want to photograph with macro lens and you haven't got it and vice versa. So um, kind of slightly envious of Maggie with a bridge camera, actually. I've been making a bit more, uh, taking advantage of the second camera that I almost always have on me is the, the camera on my phone. So what I've done a couple times is I've had my big camera, my SLR camera, and I've been using it um, with a telephoto for birds, but then using my phone camera for more macro stuff, because I find that at least with my camera, you can get quite close up to most things. So I've been taking advantage of that, actually. Oh, oh, me as well, definitely, because with with the bridge camera, you have a lens that goes between 20 to 400 millimeters. But then, you, of course, you have the, gap, the super zoom on top that makes it go to almost 2,000 millimeters. So it's brilliant for long distance shots. But actually, even with the macro setting, it just doesn't do macro photography well or at all. Uh, and this is where camera uh, on the phone comes in, definitely. Um, so I, I tend to use it a lot for insects, um, leaves, flowers, stuff like that, even though I have my other camera with me, definitely, just like you, Victor. So I've um, recently been doing a bit more. I have a little uh, loop magnifier. And if you're not familiar with one of those, it's basically a very strong, very small magnifying glass. Uh, usually most people will have a, a times 10 loop magnifier, but they can go as low as times five, I think, and as high as times 20. But with the size of those, what you can do is you put it basically right up to your phone camera lens, and then it turns it into almost a, a tiny microscope, almost, um, turns it into a, a really excellent macro photography thing. You do need to then put your phone very, very close to whatever the subject is, probably within five centimeters or so. So great for things that are going to sit very still or not move for you. So things like plants works really well. I've actually had some pretty good success using that setup with some spiders. They, they like sit very still and when you get close to them, they like breeze. So that's actually been working quite well. And it's quite inexpensive. You can get a loop magnifier for as little as 10, 15 pounds. So rather than spending loads of money on a fancy macro setup or some fancy attachment to your phone, you can just buy this little magnifying glass, which you can use without a phone just to look at things up close or to take make records of things, you can hold it up to your phone. So it's a very cheap add-on to it. I was just going to say, I've got, I've got a loop, so I've, I think I should probably try that at some point. So I don't use my phone very much uh, for taking pictures of anything other than the cat. Yeah, and I think making more use of phone cameras is a really excellent way of getting into nature photography and environment, like without needing to spend loads of money, because you uh, most uh, quite a lot of people will already have a, f- a phone, a, a cell phone of some kind, like a smartphone, and almost all of them have good cameras on them nowadays. So the other good thing about phone cameras is now they tend to have very wide angle lenses, particularly if your phone has a a selfie cam kind of thing. Those often are quite wide angle, which makes it really good for landscapes. And nowadays, because phones are, a lot of companies are making the sensors work really well in indoor settings or in parties, that makes them deal with low light levels quite well, which is really good if you're walking around somewhere 
that's quite shaded, like in the woods or something like that, or if you're doing macro photography, often that magnification ends up cutting down light quite a lot. So cell phone cameras actually handle those situations really well. But there's loads of different perspectives that you might take if you're going out to take pictures. You might be going out taking photos for a more artistic perspective. You might want to go out looking at things through a more storytelling, photojournalism kind of perspective. Nowadays, scientists are using them as a, a recording tool to have a visual record. And then you can also take photos from an identification perspective. So and, and, uh, something that I noticed, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but when I started out doing all of this, I was looking at things from this more artistic perspective and I was taking photos and then I was trying to figure out what did I actually take a photo of? So I was trying to identify things. But the problem that I came across is that when you're setting up artistic shots, often you're, you don't capture features that are actually quite important for identification. Um, is that something that you guys have come across? Oh, definitely. Uh, <laughs> many times I've come back with a beautiful photo of an eagle and actually not even the bird experts of the WWT were able to identify it because it's not the right angle. It doesn't feature a part of the bird that is crucial for identification. So definitely come across that. Um, and even deleting other pictures that I didn't think were good enough and then sort of regretting it and thinking, I should have kept those because that, that particular feature might have been on there, but I don't have the picture anymore. So it's a different way of photographing for sure. Now I've drifted more towards taking shots for identification and now it's, it's like difficult for me to get out of that mindset, which is kind of interesting. So maybe we can do like a quick run through of uh, if you are taking photos for ID purposes, what are the features to look out for? Because that's quite important if you want to get into this and you want to use those photos to um, find out what's living in your local area. If you want to identify things, it's important to be aware of the fact that not every photo is going to be good enough uh, and you might need multiple photos from different angles. So might start very simply with plants. Most ID guides for plants are based on flowers. So if you're taking photos of that, taking really good photos of the flowers, getting in the number of petals, uh, stamens. Uh, if you can get a looking down on the flower shot, which so you can see all the petals and how they're arranged, that's great. And then usually a, a shot from the side as well can be quite important. So you can see how they're all arranged. Maggie, I know you've done quite a lot of photos of plants and flowers and things. What other features have you found might are important for IDing plants? It's useful to have quite a few pictures of a plant, so both the leaves and the um, and the flower and the flower if it's around uh, the time of the year you're actually photographing. Um, but also the 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 entire plant as well, so the structure of it, how how it grows. Uh, one one thing that people always get wrong is actually fungi. Um, I know a lot of botanists that get very frustrated over people sending in pictures of fungi sort of just of the cup or the bonnet and not actually taking pictures of the gills. Looking at the gills is, is a main identifying feature of fungi and a lot of people miss that. Yeah, I actually have a little pocket mirror, like a, like a makeup mirror that I call my mushroom mirror. And it's for specifically that so that you can see the, the gills, which are on the underside of the cap without needing to either pull out the mushroom or like 
put your camera somehow like underneath to get a photo of it. So instead what I do is I angle the mirror so that I can get a shot of what the gills are, look like, how they're arranged, and then get like a side, a profile shot of the mushroom. So I found that quite useful. I think scale can be quite important with identification pictures as well. So finding some way of getting uh, a plant or a mushroom in scale is quite useful, like lens cap from the, the camera or a coin from your pocket or something like that. Yeah, that's quite a good tip as well. Let's move on to maybe uh, insects. With insects, probably you are not going to be able to get a 100% exact identification in the field or from a photo. With a lot of insects, in order to get down to what species it is, you need to dissect it. So keep expectations realistic is my first tip when you're thinking of insects and realize that you're probably only going to be able to identify down to genus level. Um, but then with features, with insects and other invertebrates, it's really broad what range of features you need to get. But I would say if you want to get a really good identification of an insect or other invertebrate, you need to get a top-down view and a, a side view, a lateral view. And with some things like spiders, you need to get a, a shot of the face as well so you can see how the eyes are arranged. Things like, um, well, moths and butterflies. I think people often forget to actually take um, a photo of the underwing as well as the upper wing. And that, that can be quite crucial to identification as well. And on the topic of wings, a lot of flies, a really important feature is how the veins on the wings are arranged. So again, getting a photo of that focuses on the wings so that you can clearly see how the veins on the wings are arranged. That can be quite important for flies and bees as well, actually. And with damselflies, the smaller cousins of dragonflies, you actually, you don't necessarily need the whole damselfly, but what you key feature on a lot of them is, at least on the small blue ones, is the first segment just below where the wings attach. So the, the first segment on the abdomen, they've got this little um, marking on them that's different on the, each different species. So getting a shot of that can be quite important. Oh, snails are quite easy, actually, because they, they don't move very much and you just need a photo of the shell. So that can be quite good. But an important feature of a lot of snails is actually if you turn them upside down, um, snails shells, when they curl around, some of them will have a little, um, when the shells curl, they leave this little like gap, little space that you'll be able to see on the underside. And not all species have that. So some of them, they'll curl around and they'll, be, they'll not leave any gap. Some of them, when they curl around, they do leave a little gap. So just turning the snail over and taking a photo of that can be quite key. And then also the opening where the snail's body is, taking a photo of that opening, because some snails will have a little, um, almost like a trap door that they can pull shut behind them, the operculum. And then some snails, they'll have a little like toothed edge to that. So getting a photo of that to see if it has those features can be quite important. What about for birds? What features have you found or what shots do you find are, are most useful for identifying birds? Uh, definitely for birds of prey, very important to try to get um, underwing and uh, sort of top view and a view from, from the ground upwards to get the patterns of the tails and the underwing and, and 
general silhouette of the bird as well because it's just not in that like a side view of a bird of prey is just not going to tell you anything and um very often when you're taking photos of birds you're on the ground and the bird is up high or up in the sky it's really easy to have the bird be really backlit which means that it shows up really dark or sometimes just black against the sky so something that i've found really helps is to be mindful of where I'm taking a photo of the bird from. So I try to get around so that my back is to the sun and then I'm facing the bird. That means that the bird's going to be front lit. If that's not available, the other thing that I try to do is try to get the bird at least against a backdrop that isn't the sky. So try to position it so that there's a, a tree behind the bird so that when I'm looking at the bird, um, there's a tree behind it and that just gives it a slightly darker background so that the camera doesn't try to you know, overcompensate for that really bright background. We talked a little bit about nature photography kind of in general. We've had a, a quick talk about some of the kit, but I know that both of you have photography related hobbies that are a bit off the beaten track. Let's start with Paul. You do some astrophotography. Talk to us a bit about astrophotography. What kind of kit do you need in order to do this? Well, astro astrophotography is, it's, it's kind of, it, it can turn into a sort of black hole for money and very, very expensive uh, kit if you, if you really get into it. I, I don't have that much expensive kit for, for my astrophotography. All you really need is a camera, a tripod, uh, is very important and some way of being able to release the shutter on your camera remotely. Your camera does also need to be able to do long exposures and you need to be able to control the length of the exposures. So there's a couple of ways of doing that. One is just to use the remote control and, uh, and a watch and most DSLRs will have a, a bulb function on them so you press the shutter and then it opens the shutter until you let go again. All the other option is to use something called an intervalometer which are fairly cheap and you can use that to do things like time lapses um, and that sort of thing. And probably the biggest challenge with astrophotography is the fact that you have to take very long exposures but you're on something that is moving the whole time, as in the Earth is constantly spinning. So it means that when you take a picture of the night sky, the objects will move across the frame. You'll end up with the trailing of the stars. So probably the two easiest forms of astrophotography to get into are the sort of wide field shots of so something interesting in the foreground and then with the night sky in the background. And you can do that fairly easily because there's um, calculations you can make on the exposure times. So you take the focal length of the lens that you're using and then you just divide it by uh, 500 or it might be the other way around. No, sorry, it's 500 divided by the focal length of the lens and that tells you how long you can take the picture, um, how long you can open the shutter uh, without the stars trailing. Um, so you can take pictures of things like the Milky Way if you go to a very dark place. So we can have things like churches or sort of local landmarks with stars in the background, all, all those sorts of things. So that's quite an easy one to do. The other one, which is kind of a step up from that, is to take advantage of the fact that the stars will appear to move and to take a star trail you can actually see the tracks of the stars as they're moving around. Um, so that means taking sort of regular 30 second exposures 
but then you have to stack them in a computer. So you can do it with things like Lightroom and Photoshop. There's actually free bits of software which you can download. You can put all your pictures in, even just JPEGs, and then it'll just stack them all up for you and um, put it together into uh, quite a nice star trail. So those are both probably the easiest projects for anybody hoping to get into astrophotography. That's um, some really good tip, especially on the, the free software, because some of it is really applicable you can use this same or similar stacking software, even if you're not taking photos of, if you're not doing astrophotography, it's useful for macro photography as well. Because mm. often that software, in addition to doing um, the kind of stacking that you're talking about, where it kind of lines up certain features and then you end up with the, these long star trails, often they can also do focus stacking, which is yeah. where it'll take the in-focus parts of a photo. So you take multiple photos of the same macro subject, um, and then it stacks the in-focus area until uh, your whole subject can be in focus, depending on how many shots you've taken. But back to astrophotography, back before I had a tripod, I did it with uh, like beanbaggy type things, or even just a, a bundled up jumper. You put your camera on that and aim it up at the sky, and it's tends to be very inexact and very um, hit and miss of whether or not you're actually pointed at the right thing. But I found that it takes some time, but you can go super low budget and just put your camera on a piece of fabric so that it points up at the sky uh, and then have it on the longest exposure that you can set your camera to. Uh, and I had a little bit of success with that. Yeah, the most important thing is to keep the camera as still as possible. So sometimes that's possibly more advantageous than using a tripod because um, tripods because they're tall they wobble around so if you've got a bit of winds or any vibration going into the system then it can sort of uh, wreck things and when you get into it really hardcore and you start taking pictures of actual deep, deep sky objects things like galaxies and nebulae and that sort of thing um, then you need to have a really rock solid mount for your um, camera to sit on because otherwise yeah it, it comes out blurry Another low, super low budget tip is to use the delay function on your camera. Because when I started, I just started trying to like, I'm gonna press the shutter button as quickly as possible and then just not touch it. But even that touching of the shutter button at the beginning was enough to like make the image blurry. So I would then set it to the two second delay, you know, which normally yeah. you would use to take those group shots where, you know, the photographer, pushes a button and then they've got a few seconds to like run over and position themselves. You can use that function so that the camera takes the shot on its own without you touching it. Yeah, that's, that is definitely one way around not having to handle the, um, handle the system. Um, has doing astrophotography, do you think, has that helped you appreciate the night sky in a, in a different way from, from before you started? I know you, you've been into astronomy for quite some time, I think. Yeah, since I was about four or so, <laughs> along with most, most uh, stuff of the natural world. Um, most people who get into astrophotography start off as visual astronomers, just looking at the night sky. Um, but the problem is because everything's so faint, the human eye isn't sensitive to the different colours of the things that you're looking at in the sky because you're using your rods rather than your cones, the different receptors in the retina. And the rods are only... Uh, sensitive to blue light so everything just looks sort of milky white 
blur. Whereas with the camera, because you can achieve those long exposures, you actually get to bring out some of the true colours um, of the things. And there's other things that are so faint that you wouldn't be able to see them with the naked eye, even with a telescope. So by taking a long exposure picture, it brings out detail that you've, you've never seen before and didn't even realise was there. That's amazing. <laughs> enough, enough to get me into astrophotography, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the first things that I was really impressed at. Even when I had a very non-fancy camera and I was doing this setup of just like on a piece of fabric, I think the longest shot I could take was 10 seconds on this really cheap like point and shoot kind of camera. Um, but even that, I was amazed that suddenly I was seeing like, oh, some of these stars are like a bit orangey, some of them are a bit bluer. And you get streaks of like, um, if just by chance a satellite goes across, you get these like blinky kind of streaks across your shot. You don't need oh, any. I often edit those out in uh, Photoshop. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to the, the other off the beaten track photography related thing is um, something that Maggie, that you've been getting really into is uh, cyanotypes. Can you tell us a bit about cyanotypes? Yeah, um, I've been getting into it um, ever since uh, the lockdown, actually. Of course, cyanotypes are also known as blueprints, um, or the earliest, earliest photographic process. And interestingly, Paul, invented by an astronomer trying to find a way to copy his notes, first in 1842. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which astronomer? <laughs> uh, John Herschel. Ah. Herschel, John Herschel, cool. yes. ah. <laughs> yeah, John Herschel. Um, so very popular during during the Victorian time, and and actually the first photographically illustrated book ever uh, was illustrated with uh, botanical cyanotypes. It was a book of uh, British algae by Anna Atkins, and I kind of got inspired by that that book. And my um, cyanotypes are mainly botanical. And it's, it's just so easy. You don't really have to go out for a long time to get, to get to do your cyanotypes. You obviously need to expose them in the sunlight. You need UV light. But you, if you don't have a garden, you can do it uh, from your window. A garden is not necessary. When you go out for your one-hour walk, there is plenty of weeds. So not plants that are endangered or anything like that you can pick up and they make beautiful patterns and they look great as cyanotypes but you can of course do it with anything you can do it with any semi-transparent objects or in your house opaque objects as well you can mix things up i started to use leaf skeletons as well so i'm making those at home myself but there is just endless opportunities what you can do with this i quite like the botanical cyanotypes but because they make me look at plants in a different way when I go out for my one hour. I, I look at weeds very differently now. I really appreciate their shapes, uh, intricate details and seed shapes and leaf shapes. And also, I'm really getting my head around all the different plants uh, in my local area. So my ID skills are improving as well. Uh, it's really great. And it's really, it's a good tie-in actually for here in the UK in the national curriculum, you know, key stage one is all about getting to know the animals and plants that are in your local area. So a good, good little tip, you know, having, having a look at, at those plants a bit closer in that different way, figuring out what they are and you're hitting your national curriculum. Absolutely. I mean, you can do it with tree leaves and label them and look at their shapes, identify them. 
So loads of nice learning for, for children and adults alike. Um, and you don't have to do it on paper. Um, the uh, light sensitive chemicals that you use will work for anything organic. So obviously paper, I'd recommend art, arts paper, so something a little bit thicker. Uh, because if you do it on a regular so printing paper, it will just fall apart when once you rinse the, the chemicals. But it also works on cotton, wool, so you can do it on fabric as well. Oh, very uh, cool. Can you tell us a bit about what the kit is that you need? So you, you need something as subject matter, and you can use anything that will let a little bit of light through. Opaque objects, which just, just means that the shape you get will be completely white. Uh, it could be, you know, kids can use their toys to make different images. I, I've known of artists using things like waves on a, on a beach, making, uh, making patterns, I would say, on the types. So you can use your hands, if you like, depending on the exposure time. Um, in terms of the kit, um, on a very basic level, you can just order, say, on a type paper online, and then chemicals are already there for you. And the only other two things you need after that, really, is sunlight and water and that's it cyan type paper sunlight and water but of course if you want to experiment a little bit more you can order the chemicals online quite easily there are two chemicals that you need to mix together and then apply in um in the room away from uv night and you can apply them yourself on various types of paper so you can experiment with that or fabric again really easy to order online even in the days of lockdown um, what I would recommend if you do botanical cyanotypes is actually dry, press dry your plants first. And if you have any glass frames around the house, use that glass, just press it down. So you will get the exposure, but your plants won't move around and you will get the intricate details a lot more. By press drying your plants as well, it just means that the contact area, uh, the contact is solid with the paper which gives you a lot better results with more intricate details so i would definitely recommend that the nice thing about using sunlight is you don't really know the exposure time because it depends on how strong the sun is on the on the day and if you have a cloudy day the exposure time can go up to 45 minutes on a beautiful sunny day midday two minutes only what I would recommend is using little strips of paper and maybe text, test the exposure time first before you start uh, exposing your, your picture. And so you don't need uh, like a full dark room like with like photographic paper, it's ultraviolet light that paper reacts to? Exactly, so you can, you can place your objects on your cyanotype paper just in, indoors in your kitchen as long as the sun isn't coming through the window. And then as soon as you've finished, bring it out to the sunshine or to the window where the sunlight is. Uh, so you don't need a dark room, it's quite easy to use. Just use it in any area in your house where, where you don't have direct sunlight. Wow. And then once it's exposed, then, then how do you stop it from continuing to expose? So as long as the chemicals stay on the paper, or will keep on exposing. So now you need to rinse the chemicals off, which you just do with cold water, um, with a tap. You don't some people use uh, trays, so sort of deep trays that um, they use to rinse it off with water. But you just need a tap. You can do it on them. Just just pour the water over for a few minutes till the chemicals have been rinsed off, and that's it. And does the picture like appear on the paper at the just like before your eyes? That it, it's beautiful. Is the second you take off the plant or any object you had on it from the paper, you can see the, expo the exposed part. 
And then when you stop pouring water over, the river becomes even clearer. One other thing I want to add, because obviously with cyanotype, also known as blueprint, you only get blue color, very deep blue color if it's exposed well. If not exposed well, you get lighter shades of blue. But we are talking about blue. And not everybody likes the blue. There is a way around that. You still get the blue to begin with, but you can actually bleach the image with sodium carbonate or sugar soap. Um, those chemicals you can get very easily in any DIY shop. You just need to add one tablespoon to one liter of water. It will bleach the blue color off. Now, now you're not going to see much, but what you've got to do next is rinse it with water and then put it in a tea solution and you get really nice brown shades. So it looks really retro. So some people really prefer that brown color. The last bit of the episode is talking a little bit about some tips for doing photography with kids. Number one is to start with taking photos of things that don't move because that can be quite a challenge. Getting things in focus can be really difficult. Another one is to bring some kind of container with you if you are going to take a photo of insects or other animals and that way when they're when your uh, invertebrate is running around on the bottom of the container that keeps them on one level plane and that means that you can set up your camera top down on the on the creature so like through the top of the container and you just need to focus on the bottom of the container um, and rather than having your camera try to autofocus this thing that's moving around, you can just focus on the bottom of the container. Um, so that makes getting things in focus a bit easier. And then the other tip that I have is when you're dealing with taking photos in nature, cameras can often struggle with figuring out what to focus on. You know, if you're trying to take a picture of an insect or something or a flower and there's lots of other grass and plants in the way, camera doesn't know what to focus on. So something that can help is bring a piece of paper or something that you can use as a really plain background. And that way, what you want to take a photo of stands out against the background and it helps your camera to focus on. Do you guys have any tips for uh, getting started in, in photography? I think just experiment and don't worry if the pictures come out rubbish because it's the only way to learn just be happy happy to make mistakes um i think that's one of the great advantages of digital photography that um back in the old days you know you have 24 or 36 36 attempts and then you had to send it off and pay five quid or whatever and a week later it came back and they're all rubbish whereas now you can just look at the back of the camera and go oh yeah that's that looks quite good oh, that's a load of rubbish i'm gonna try that again Absolutely, I agree with Paul. Um, don't be afraid of making mistakes. But also, um, I think people, when they think about wildlife photography, they automatically think about exotic places and uh, big exotic mammals and you know the big five and so on. But I, I think one tip I would I would give to someone who starts off is um, you know you, it's enough actually just to go to to your local park or even your own little garden or even down the street to find some really, really interesting things to photograph, both plant, plant life-wise, uh, bird-wise, um, in London that we don't associate with, with wildlife or nature necessarily. There is so much to see and explore and photograph in, in any small park around London. So I think the tip I will say, just, 
just really look carefully around you and there is plenty of things to photograph. Children tend to be quite fascinated by a microscope up close because it, it just gives you that extra information and, and the sort of structure of leaves or you can see animals in a very different light. So one, one really nice thing to, to get that really doesn't cost very much at all, it's sort of a little microscope you can get for an iPhone or for your computer and to, to take pictures with um, and then you really don't have to go any further than your own house to find some interesting subjects to photograph like spider webs or little creatures around your house or just literally outside your door in a, in a lawn. Excellent well I think that's going to bring us to the end of our episode if you want to have more details on anything that we've talked about again you can check out the show notes that will be on our website, which is knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. And we'd love to see any of your photos, any of your nature photos that you've taken. If we've inspired you to get out there and take some photos, send them in to us. Our email address is knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. And with that, all that's left is for me to say thank you very much to my guests, Maggie and Paul. Thank you both very much for coming along today. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.